Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We're going through the Gospel of Mark at kind of a breakneck pace because that's the way the book is written. It's just a quick trip through the life of Jesus, the shortest of the Gospels, and we're just looking at a chapter each week. And we saw last week how in chapter 2, Jesus coming on the scene, he was just so radical. He did things so differently than the way you'd expect. And here in chapter 3, we see him beginning to have more run-ins with the religious establishment. And chapter 3 shows that Jesus came, though, to, to fulfill everything that the Jews were looking forward to, but he took the religion and just turned it on its ear. He turned it upside down because his approach was so different than what they expected. You would think that the most religious people would have been the ones who were the most welcoming of the arrival of the Messiah when he fulfilled the prophecies and he could heal people just with a word from his mouth and, you know, all the miracles that he did. You would think they would have welcomed him with open arms, but as is typical with established religious leaders, they don't like anything that challenges their authority or rattles their cage. And so instead of welcoming him as the one that they were looking forward to from a very early time in his ministry, we see that the religious leaders are the ones who wanted to do away with him. They were the ones who early on began to plot how they could kill him and get rid of him. It's so sad and so ironic. But we see Jesus having a run-in with the Pharisees in the synagogue um, beginning in verse 1, and it says he went into the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. His arm and hand were probably shrunk up, kind of like um, Bob Dole's. And it said they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. You know, in that culture, there weren't a lot of things, a lot of jobs you could do if you only had one hand that was functional. And so... It was a tragedy that a guy was spending his life with only one hand that, that could do anything. And you'd think that the people would be you know, just rejoicing at the possibility that maybe Jesus could give this guy a fresh start. But they were instead watching him, hoping to catch him doing something wrong. They didn't like the way he did things. He was a threat to their leadership and their security. And so here early on, we see them watching him, hoping to catch him, trip him up. And they also knew he's a compassionate guy. He had powers. And so they thought, this is a recipe for, for disaster because it's a Sabbath day. And you know you don't work on the Sabbath. And if he heals this guy, boy, we've got him. We can nail him. And so he said to the man who had the withered hand, Jesus did, step forward. He knew they were watching. Now, he could have just said, pulled the guy off to the side and went behind a curtain somewhere and boom, healed him. And then the guy comes back out and they're like, wait, how did that happen? What? But... He goes, you know what? I'm going to face you guys off. I'm going to call you out. And he had the guy with the withered hand just come and stand right in front of them. And then he asked them this question. He said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life 
or to kill. He had them trapped. Because here's a guy whose life could be turned around if only he could use that hand. And Jesus had the power to do that. And the Sabbath day was a holy day, and what more holy than a guy having his life given back to him. And so he kind of had him set up. They thought they had him set up. And he said, so it's the Sabbath. Would you want to do good or would you want to do bad? Would you want to give life to someone or would you just want to leave them with no life? Would you want to do something that's more likely to kill him than to give him life? And they didn't know what to say. But see, they had their traditions about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a beautiful thing that God had built into the law, a day off. And it wasn't about, oh, on the Sabbath, what can't you do, a rigid restriction sort of thing. It was only restrictive in the sense that take a day off. Just don't do anything on that day. Now, they developed all sorts of traditions out of that where it became a real burden. And many Jews, even to this day, continue to inherit some of the silly things. They had a tradition that said you couldn't wear your false teeth on the Sabbath because that's bearing a burden. You're carrying them. Over in Israel today, they, they say that, you know, you can't push the button on an elevator on the Sabbath because that's work. And so what do you do? You have to walk up the stairs. Well, that's even more work. So if you go to Israel today on the Sabbath day, the elevator is set to stop on every floor. And that way nobody has to do the work of pushing the button. Now, I know sometimes when we have to push a button, we're like... Oh, but, you know, come on. That's not, that's not what God had in mind, certainly. But that's what they do. Today in Israel, they believe that if you spend money on the Sabbath, that's wrong because you're working. But on the other hand, women want to shop. I suppose men too. And so what they do is, many of them believe that if you spend money but you use a credit card, then that doesn't violate the Sabbath. You go, how could that have anything to do with it? Well, see, if I put it on my credit card, I'm not really paying for it. I'm only saying that I will pay for it. And so as long as I pay my credit card bill on a day other than the Sabbath, I'm okay. And that's how silly it was. And, and it was in those days too. And so these guys thought that just to heal somebody, oh, that would be work. And Jesus just is looking at them going, what is wrong with you guys? They couldn't answer him, but they were still ready to bust him. Now, they were working on the Sabbath. This was their job to sniff out sin, and so they tried to do it. But when he looked around, verse 5, at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, Jesus looked at them and he thought, how in the world did a beautiful faith that was delivered by God that was all about me, that probably Jesus wrote the law out with his own hand, at least the Ten Commandments, how did it deteriorate into something that would say to do something good is wrong on the Sabbath? This is the Lord's day. Don't do anything good for anyone. And it, it made him mad. And he was bummed because they were so stubborn that he could tell already they're probably not going to change. But he said to the man, stretch out your hand. 
He's like, stretch out my hand. I can't stretch out my hand. I'll just stretch it out. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. The Herodians were people who were traitors to the Jewish cause, but they were kissing up to the Roman leaders. And so now these deeply religious Pharisees are linking up with these totally irreligious Herodians because the one thing they both agree on is Jesus must be stopped. We need to destroy him. How sick, how perverse. But that's what it did when he came along. Because the Pharisees who had invested their whole lives in their traditions were now threatened by someone who could change everything, who flipped it upside down. You mean, we've been denying ourselves all this time and it's not necessary? Are you saying that we who teach people how to be different, now you're saying, no, that's not what God had in mind? Hey, you're putting us out of business. That's a threat to us. We can't have that. We need to stop him. And they couldn't see that he was the one that all of their religion was ultimately about. They couldn't get that. And instead, here they were in favor of leaving people in their pain rather than seeing people be delivered from pain. Now, there are Pharisees still around today, literally some of them, but there are a lot of other people who have inherited this thing of my traditions are more important than what's good for people. And we can sometimes interpret Scripture in a way that, that denies the very point of God's program for his people. God wanted to bless people. He wanted to help them. And yet, sometimes with our traditions, we can alienate and exclude others. And we see good things happening, and we don't like it. We see people being healed, and maybe we don't like the way they're being healed. And as a result, we're... Oh, that's not good. That has to stop. There are a lot of people in this world who are doing good, who are from their heart wanting to help people. And we should always just go, hey, that's a good thing. This is something that I think God would want. And that's so painfully obvious. The only reason we wouldn't see it is if our hearts are so hard and we are so stubbornly locked into our traditions that we can't even appreciate somebody trying to do something good. Now, there's a really large church in our area, Saddleback Church, and they've taken on a program called the Peace Plan, and their goal is very ambitious to really go all around the world and solve all the problems of the world, political problems by reconciliation, educational problems by teaching, people who are hungry, feeding them, people who are diseased, helping them to be healed and all this stuff. Now, you can look at that and go, oh, they're missing the point of what we're supposed to be doing. Or we, You can be critical of that, but at least acknowledge this, they're out there helping people. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that something that God would want to do? And for everyone, whether Saddleback Church or whether you know the Red Cross or Compassion International or World Vision or Samaritan's Purse or whoever, I don't care if total heathens want to go out there and feed people and heal them. I say, 
great. They're at least doing the kinds of things that God wants done. Let's not criticize them. Let's not act like, oh, they're our enemy because they don't do it the way we do it. That's just absolutely nuts. And that's kind of the point that Jesus makes here. But for a religious person, that's kind of a threat because I'm afraid that what he's doing works better than what we're doing. I'm afraid that they're going to make us look bad by what they do and what we don't do. That's just plain dumb. If somebody wants to go out there and, and be a voice of healing, then I'm not saying that everyone who is doing social work are Christians and are going to heaven. That's not necessarily true. But I, I don't have the time to be opposed to people who are trying to do good things. That's, that seems so basic. But that's basically the statement that Jesus made. And so to these people, that looked really threatening. It looked very controversial. And that made Jesus very mad that they would even think it's controversial. Hey, if somebody is violating your traditions, but a guy who has only one arm now has two, wouldn't you say that's a good thing? I would. Jesus would. Pharisees? No. They're skeptical. And we'll see a little later the scribes get in on the action, the theologians, and and it gets even worse. But that's the first thing that we see here where Jesus just goes right into their house and flips it upside down and does religion, if you want to call it that. I, I don't even like calling Christianity a religion because it's so different. Most every other religion is people trying to get to God and Christianity is recognizing what God did to try to get to people. But at any rate, it confuses people when you don't call it that. So call it whatever you want. Jesus did it differently than anyone else. Now as we read on, we see a crowd is beginning to gather. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea all the way down in south in Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, All over the place, people were coming. Those from Tyre and Sidon over on the northern coast, a great multitude. When they heard how many things he was doing, they came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat would be kept ready for him because of the multitudes, lest they should crush him. For he healed many so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Now, there are two things that are very unusual about this in the religious realm. First of all, the religious leaders of those days never attracted a crowd. There weren't a bunch of people coming from all over to listen to what the Pharisees had to say. You didn't go unless you had to go. See, no one would come and say, oh, good, I'm back this week in church, and and the Pharisees are going to tell us even more things that we can't do. They're going to tell us even more ways that we're a failure. People tend to not be drawn to that kind of a message, and the Pharisees would have loved the attention. They appreciated the attention, but when they got attention, they usually had to buy it. And so when they were doing something righteous and religious, they would announce it. They would pay people to cheer. They would pay someone to blow a trumpet when they would give their money and things like that because, hey, they wanted the attention, but they couldn't get it. Now, that's the second thing that was weird about Jesus here. 
is that Jesus is getting the attention, and he doesn't want it. He's like, hey, shut up, calm down. He tells the disciples, better get a boat ready, because if there's too many people here, we're going to need to bail. Now, that was also unprecedented in the religious world, as it pretty much is today, frankly, where for a, for a religious leader to say, this is working too well, let's get out of here. Can you imagine a pastor who would say to a church, you know what, it's getting too crowded here. I think I'm going to have to quit. <laughs> what? No, it'd be more likely today, you know, oh, we're getting more crowded, so praise the Lord, maybe we can plant other campuses and we can have video venues and we can do whatever we need to do because, boy, I got to keep that crowd coming. I have to accommodate them. So Jesus here, again, is so unlike the religious leaders because, for one thing, people are drawn to him in droves. And secondly, he doesn't want the publicity now, there are people in the religious world who think any kind of publicity is good publicity. And so if the newspapers want to do a story on them, ooh, yeah, that's great. That's... The demons wanted to do a story on Jesus. And they were saying who he was. And for most religious leaders, they would go, look, even the demons know who I am. Check it out. But he's just going, you know what? I don't need your help. I don't need a PR person. I don't need your promotional assistance. And if it starts getting too crowded, I'm out of here. Wow. For, for religion, this is what they all dreamed of the day when the place would be packed. But for Jesus, he was motivated by something else. He was called to something differently than that, and we can see it. Now in the next several verses, it talks about the calling of his disciples. And it names the 12 disciples. He called them at different times. And we saw earlier when he called uh, Matthew or Levi. Um, but he called each of them at different times. And this is kind of the summary when he got them all together and said, hey, guys, you're the final 12. You're it. Now, look, in verse 13, he went up on the mountain and he called to him those who he himself wanted. And they came to him. And then he appointed the 12 so they could preach and go out and heal people and stuff like that. And then he gives the names of the 12. Now, it says that he himself wanted them. And that's calling attention in the original to the fact that he specifically wanted them. And a part of the implication is no one else really did. And that was certainly true when you look at this crew, when you look at the kind that they were. Now, again, this is something that for religious leaders, you knew where you got your guys. You know, you raised them from a young age, your family, preparing them for leadership within the religion. And you got people who were gifted and talented, educated, influential in every way. Boy, the resume was everything to be promoted in the religious world. But Jesus, he picked guys that were, they had nothing going for them, except that he wanted them. Nobody else wanted them. When, when you look down the list at them and consider who they were, now, in those days, Almost everyone was identified by their occupation. That was how people knew who you were. Like Simon the Tanner. 
You had Lydia, who was a maker of purple, who was a seamstress. You had Paul and, and uh, you know, others who were tent makers. You had Jesus and, and his stepfather, Joseph, who were carpenters. And what you did for a living established who you were and what you were worth, frankly. Now, these guys, five of them were fishermen, at least, possibly more. But at least five of them were fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Philip, and, and good chance that Nathaniel was also. So either five or six of them, almost half of them were fishermen. Now, in those days, up in the Galilee, being a fisherman was about as low as it gets in terms of the way to make a living. Now, I've heard people sometimes talk about, oh, no, they owned fleets of fishing ships. They, you know, make these guys out like they're Onassis or something. For one thing, they didn't even own their boats. They worked for their dad. How pathetic is that? Just kidding. But, <laughs> but the boats, if you go there, they've dug up some of the boats there in the Galilee. There aren't big fishing ships as we would know it. The Sea of Galilee is a lake. And the boats that they take were these little rowboats. And if you were going to inherit your dad's business, his boat would be shot long before you inherited it. So these guys, their job was a dirty, scummy job of, of catching fish for people in a, in a difficult place to do it, by the way, not out in open ocean. So that's some of them. Now, a bunch of them, now there were two guys here who are identified, well, one for sure, Simon, and probably another one, Thaddeus. They were called zealots. A zealot was basically a terrorist, if you will. They were Jewish loyalists who were fighting and opposed to the Roman government. They lived up in caves and made graves. Now, if you wanted to glamorize a zealot, you could say they were a political activist or maybe a community organizer. But, I mean, really, these guys were just... They didn't have a job. They thought their job was just to stir things up. Now, you go, but wait a minute, we saw Matthew last time, he was a tax collector. Well, you think of a tax collector as like an IRS agent in the corner office at the top with the beautiful view, and you, know, you misunderstand taxes. Taxes in those days, you didn't file taxes. They weren't all detailed with all these forms, and an intelligent guy had to interpret it. What a tax collector was in those days, they set up a little booth out on the road, much like the toll booth on the toll road. And they just collected money from real business people who would come by. And they would charge them a lot. Kind of, it, it's sort of like the fast track, where once you put that thing in your car, you have no idea what they're charging you when you drive over the toll road. And then you set it up so that it's paid automatically out of your bank account. They email you the thing so you don't get it in the mail. And you have no idea. You don't even want to look at it and find out what you paid for the privilege of driving on the road. Well, Matthew was the guy who was taking that. And he'd see your car, and he'd set it up to, you know, 675 when you beep, beep, and, you know, there, he, he keeps a little, turns it back down. They were basically crooks who worked toll roads, you know, booths. So he was, those were considered the lowest of the lows. The other guys, there is no mention of their professions at all. And that was extremely unusual. As you go through the Bible, there aren't a whole lot of people who aren't identified by their profession. What that meant in Galilee, which was the wrong side of the tracks, it was the slums, basically, of those days. What it meant was they were day laborers. 
They didn't even do anything regularly enough that they could actually say, this is what I do for a living. They would just pick up a job wherever they could and just do it. So basically, that's the disciples. Some fishermen, a toll booth guy, and a bunch of guys without a job. Oh, except there was one guy who was probably a successful businessman that we didn't mention. In fact, he was the only guy with enough of an education. They put him in charge of maintaining all of their money, paying their bills and things like that. Judas Iscariot, he was qualified. The rest of the guys, <laughs> the rest of the guys, their qualification was very simple. Jesus himself wanted them. In 1 Corinthians, it says that among the Christians, there are not many wise and not many nobles, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise so that he would get the glory. God deliberately chooses to pick people who are basically losers. Now you go, wait a minute, I'm not a loser, I'm a winner. Okay, great. You know, <laughs> congratulations. Most of us, most of us came to Jesus when nobody else wanted us. But he did. And that's what struck us. Because we could see ourselves in a position where it's like, whatever I have, it's not working. And then Jesus goes, well, I want you. And what a powerful transforming agent that is in our lives. And then he doesn't go, oh, now you have, I have to equip you and everything. No. He wants you. He'll train you. He has called you, and that's what he did. No religious leader of those days would ever suggest such a radical thing. They would, of course they know, oh no, this is the Lord's work. We need to have the best. Well, Jesus didn't know that. He picked, you know, when he said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, he said that he said it to the 12. He chose Judas. Maybe because you got to have an accountant, but, you know, he had a purpose. There was a reason why Jesus even chose him, that the scripture would be fulfilled. So, but for the religious people, it would be like, the kind of people you're hanging around, you can't possibly do a good job representing God. How dare you? And he goes, yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's, that's my guys. That's what we're doing. Now we read on after he called the, the 12. He now has a run-in with the theologians. The scribes were a little more academic and went a lot deeper in their knowledge of the law than even the Pharisees. They were the ones who interpreted the law. So the multitude came together again, verse 20, so that they couldn't so much as eat bread. And when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he is out of his mind. So Jesus' own family was going, this is getting out of hand. This is crazy. He's got this big following. We need to drag him back into the carpenter shop and let him know who he really is. This is going to his head. And we'll see them later in the end of the chapter. But the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. The scribes, their job was kind of to sniff out sin. That's what they saw. And so they evaluated what he was doing, and they said, 
he can cast out demons and we can't, so he must be in cahoots with Satan. You couldn't attract a crowd like this unless it was of Satan. You couldn't have those powers. You know, Satan can do miracles too. And that was their whole rap. And so they came and publicly pronounced, he is of the devil, that's his thing. That's where his problem is coming in. Theologically, that's our evaluation. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. So he says, guys, think about this. I'm doing good things. Satan is being defeated. He's being dishonored. People who he controls are being delivered and now they're praising God. And you're saying I'm doing it by the power of Satan? Why would Satan cast out Satan? Why would Satan even want to bring people to Jesus? Why would he want them to desire a relationship with God? That just doesn't make sense. That's, that's stupid that you would even suggest such a thing. But now he gets personal with them. After the little stories, look at what he said. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter... He said, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, it can be forgiven. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Whoa, that's pretty heavy. But think about what they were accusing him of. They're going, Jesus is of the devil. And first he showed, then why am I kicking the devil out of people? Why would the devil want to heal people and bless people and make them happy and get a life and get excited? Why would that make sense? But he said, guys, you are doing something that may verge on a sin that cannot be forgiven. Now, any sin can be forgiven and any blasphemy. But he said, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and that might lead to your eternal damnation. Be careful. Now, he didn't say they had already done it. He was still, I believe, hoping that they would repent and not do it. But this passage is disturbing to a lot of people because you talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin. What is it that can't be forgiven? What sin is it that when you do it, now you're done your fate is sealed, you're going to hell. Well, for one thing, it is certainly not that, you know, saying, just saying something. Because anything that you say can be forgiven. It's not, you know, falling asleep in church. It's not, you know, saying, th- you know, questioning whether, you know, something is real. It's not saying in your own heart or in your own mind, I blaspheme you, Holy Spirit. And because people do that kind of stuff, It's weird, it's not healthy, but what happens? The way our mind works, if you tell somebody, don't think this, they just naturally want to think it. Don't think of a blue Volkswagen right now. Oh, 
And so there are a lot of people who say, oh, I've committed the unpardonable sin, and they tell you what it is. First, let me make this really clear. If you feel bad about it, that you've committed it, then you didn't commit it. Because you can't feel bad about sin unless the Holy Spirit is convicting you and working in your life. So if you care whether or not you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit, then you haven't to that extent. You haven't committed the unpardonable sin. Now, if you've gotten to the point where you just don't care anymore, that doesn't matter to you, heaven, hell, God, Jesus, it doesn't, I don't even care, then you might have got to that point. I don't know. But if you've got to that point, why do you care? You don't even believe it, so why are you going to get bummed out about something the Bible says? But the truth is, if God is still talking to you, if you still want him, he wants you. Let me make that really clear. If you want him, he wants you. So forget about, uh-oh, I think I did this. Even these guys, he doesn't say he, you did it. He says, you are treading on dangerous ground. You're putting yourselves in danger of going too far and of this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So what is it? Now, some theologians believe that it only could happen in the first century with Jesus, that perhaps it could only be committed by religious leaders like the scribes or who knows. But here's the principle. What they were doing that was so dangerous is they were looking at something that God was doing and they were saying that Satan was doing it. Why is that dangerous? Because now how's God going to talk to you? Whatever he says, you're going to think it's Satan. Whatever miracle he does, you're going to go, yeah, but it's not real, it's Satan. And once you get to that point, you're in a dangerous position because now there's nothing God can do to get, get a, his word across to you, to reach you with his love. Now you go, well, why would anyone ever do that? Well, there are people today who are anxious, and they are theologically tuned in, and they're absolutely certain that they are right and other people are wrong. And their ministry is to go around and brand everyone and find out who's of the devil, kind of like the church lady used to do. You know, Satan, is that it? And so they look at, they look at ministries where God's doing great things, and they go, you know, they believe that there's this great conspiracy, this great apostasy. They believe that most people who name the name of Jesus and who worship him are actually part of the Antichrist hordes who are going to be a part of a new world order and a religion and the new age movement is a part of it and they're all in on it. And really the only people that are really saved are me and you and I'm not so sure about you. And, <laughs> and that's their thing. Now, some of these people would include Billy Graham as being someone who actually attracts people by the power of Satan. Billy Graham? Isn't it clever how Satan is causing millions of people to pray to accept Christ through this demon demonic Billy Graham? But that's what they believe. And they look at what's happening at, with Rick Warren and they go, it's demonic, I'm telling you. And they, recently, some of them have attacked Greg Laurie. Now, here's how, here's how this works. They say, Greg Laurie is involved in an evangelistic thing in New York City. A couple of other people who are involved in it 
are Rick Warren from Saddleback Church, Bill Hybels from Willow Creek Church. We know they are a part of the New Age conspiracy because Rick Warren uses the version of the Bible called The Message and does all these things. And so we know they're demonic. Now Greg Laurie must be demonic too because he's in on it with them and it's actually Satan who's motivating him. And we need to take a stand because Greg Laurie is apostate, meaning he's not a Christian anymore. That's really smart. Yeah, real clever of Satan to get a bunch of people saved. (laughs) Jesus would go, what are you talking about? But not only that, it's really dangerous. Personally, I do not ever want to give Satan more glory for anything. And so I don't want to say, you know, hey, all of a sudden I got in an accident. Well, Satan was behind it. I'm not going to give him credit. I'd rather go, hey, God must have had a reason for that. If I'm sick, oh, Satan, I bind you. No, maybe I just was out in the cold or I got a germ or something. And and yeah, if I just stayed at the house, that wouldn't happen. But God's called me to go out of the house. And so maybe God has something he wants to do through it. If I start looking for Satan in everything, and especially when I see purported works of God, good things are happening, people are being saved, people are being healed, and I'm going to go, oh, that's Satan? Satan, it does have a nickname in the Bible. He's called the accuser of the brethren. I don't want to take on his job. I do not want to be the accuser of the brethren. And I don't want to, in the name of discernment, start looking where good things are happening and figure out why it's probably not really good. I mean, to me, somebody who can harden their heart so much that they're out there picketing at the Harvest Crusade, inside, thousands of people are professing faith in Jesus Christ. They're getting new Bibles. Their lives are starting over. God is healing them and working in their lives. I would rather be down on the field praying with them than to be out in the parking lot protesting because I don't like some of the things that Greg Laurie says or how he does what he does. Hey, every church, every movement, I can point out things about it that I don't like. But I'm not going to say it's of Satan. That's just stupid. Why should I give him credit for good things that are actually happening? And why should I run the risk of getting to the point where I can't even recognize the work of God because everything God's doing, I'm starting to suspect, is it really God or is it the other God? Is it, is it really Jesus or is it another Jesus? That's, nobody's called to that. That's just totally crazy. The scribes thought they were called to that. But it's a very dangerous thing to do. There's a book out now that's really popular on the New York Times bestseller list, and it's called The Shack. Now, I read it. A lot of people are talking about it. Some people absolutely love the book. Some people absolutely hate it. I was somewhere in between. I I see good things in it, and I see some things I certainly would have done differently. But there are some people who are so worked up about it that they just want to warn everyone, oh, be be careful of the shack. Now, for one thing, that's going to sell more books for the guy. I'm, I'm certain of that. But I look at it, the guy that wrote a story. Yeah, there are some things he could have worded differently, but there are people whose lives have been devastated who are reading this book and they're saying, this changed my life. 
I now understand that God loves me like I never could have understood it before. I, I now, there are thousands of people who are professing faith in Jesus Christ after they've read the shack. So I don't go out and publicize it or recommend it or whatever, but I'm certainly not going to say the shack is of the devil. Even Shaq O'Neal. I'm just like, no, hey, <laughs> if God wants to use this to touch people, to heal them, to bless them, to, I, I can say whether I like it or not, but I'm not going to ever say this is a part of a satanic conspiracy. The scribes did that, and Jesus called them out, warned them, That kind of thinking can leave you on the outside. When you start to define what's right in such a rigid way, you might find out that where you draw the line leaves you out of that which God wants to do. Now, towards the end here, Jesus' family shows up. Now, we know from verse 21 that his family thought he was crazy, And they decided, we better go get him. He's embarrassing himself, and he's embarrassing us. So now, and and this whole passage is really disturbing to people who believe that Mary is a co-redemptrix with Christ, and that she didn't have any other kids, that Jesus didn't have brothers. Because verse 31 says, Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. They couldn't even get in by the VIP guard. So they said, hey, tell Jesus his family's out here. And they probably figured they would grab him and go deprogram him. A multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he said, well, good. You got to meet my mother. She's someone who will intercede for you. She's someone who in some ways will help save you. No, he said, my mother who? Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Now, in those days, the religious leadership was all about nepotism because who can you trust better than your family? It's not that your family is better than everyone else. It's just that you all know too much about each other, so you want to surround yourself with your relatives in order to insulate and isolate you from others. And so then they would groom their kids to come up and educate them so that they could be a part of things. It's one reason why throughout the history of Israel, the the movement spiritually continued to spiral downhill until somebody came up to bring about a revival. Because you cannot pass on to the next generation automatically a work of God. See, it, it always has to be fresh and new. Now, it's a very cool thing. And our desire for all of us should be that our kids would grow up and love God and serve Him. And when your family loves God and is involved in ministry with you, it's a beautiful thing. It's incredible. But when you put your family in that position and that's not happening, it's typically what they would do religiously. But what Jesus says here is, you know what? Forget everything you know about family. My family are the people who are here serving God and loving him. 
who know him. He started a whole new concept of family. Now, thankfully, we know at least two of Jesus' brothers ended up getting saved following his resurrection and then became leaders in the church. And God used them in great ways. But had they not, his attitude was still, my family are these guys who are hanging around me. Now, you know how that works. Because compare when you get together with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Compare what we have today here in the church to your last family reunion you went to. (laughs) And it's like, relatives are kind of who people that you would never hang out with if you weren't related to them. <laughs> people who love God, you, you first meet them and you click and you love them and you want to hang out with them. And that's what Jesus was doing here. And for a religious leader, it was really radical. It was upside down. It was to say, from now on, family means the body of Christ. Now, it is an incredible bonus when you have members of your biological family who come to Jesus and are also serving him and can participate as a body of Christ, and that's the way it ought to be. But family is defined by those who, as he says, does the will of God. That's my brother, my sister, and my mother. And so he defines, redefines family in a way that, again, turns their preconceptions upside down. It would for us too. And yet, this is who Jesus is. This is how he does things. This is what makes Christianity so different from other religions that often we say, well, Christianity isn't a religion at all. It is and it isn't. James says true religion is when you take care of widows and orphans, and we certainly ought to be doing that, and we should be religious. But we often say that religion is man's attempt to get to God. Christianity is what God did to get to man, and that's a helpful distinction. But here in this third chapter of Mark, we see some other distinctions as well that are important for us to understand because it still applies today. It's still true today. And if we develop our traditions that make us more like Pharisees and scribes rather than like children of Jesus Christ, his people, then we will be violating the same principles that he called them on the carpet for. And it shouldn't be that way. We shouldn't do that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for calling us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for healing us and touching us and blessing us. God, you're so good. Lord, help us to let you, Jesus, define our faith. Protect us from our own stupid traditions that would end up excluding our brothers and sisters, that would end up causing us to divide from those who are also yours. You prayed that we would be one. I pray that we would learn that by defining relationship the way you did. Help us not to judge. Help us to love each other as family. And help us to let you set the rules, not to develop our own. In Jesus' name, amen.